Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Len Trainer is an historian and a fellow of the Company of Military Historians. His uncle served in the Royal Air Force in Bomber Command in World War II and was killed in action. Len spoke with Angus Horden about his uncle and the history of Bomber Command. I'm Angus Horden, and today on Life on the Line, we're speaking with Len Trainer. Len, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure, Angus. So, Len, we're going to have a bit of a chat about your uncle's World War II service and to use his experience to learn more about Bomber Command in general. But first, let's get a bit of a background of your uncle. What was his name and where was he born? Well, here's my uncle, Jack, my mother's younger brother, and his full name was Arthur George Jackson Chadwick Bates, which is hyphenated. And he was born in Wellington, New Zealand, of English parents on the 16th of August, 1910. So what do you know about his childhood? Very little, because my mother was reluctant to talk about him after his death. It was very difficult extracting information. His parents owned a copper plantation just outside Port Vila in New Caledonia. And he grew up there, became fluent in French. And they came back to Australia in 1928, if I remember correctly. And he uh, became an accountant and was working for a a firm called A.E. Goodwin at Lidcombe. And he was very good at sport, apparently. Rugby union, cricket, golf and tennis. So when did he actually joined the Air Force? Uh, July of 1941. Okay. And can you tell us a bit about his training experiences and and indeed many of that generation, what they would have gone through at that time? Well, you know, actually, the Air Force. Oh, sorry, and actually his initial training was done here at Linfield. Here across at Bradfield. The, at Bradfield Park, which trained 200,000 personnel for the RAAF during World War II, including 16,500 for bomber crew. The standards for bomber crew was very high indeed. They were actually the creme de la creme of our fighting force, which might offend a lot of people, but happened to be true. And they had to do a very testing examination before they were accepted, which included mathematics and trigonometry and science and a bit of meteorology to see that they had the standards required. When the war started early on in 39-40, these are years that your uncle is hasn't joined up, but he's been formed by all these news reports that are coming predominantly from Europe and then sadly also from the Pacific. And for Australians, the easiest way of getting back at the enemy was actually to go abroad and to join mostly the Royal Air Force. Well, yeah, Japan never came into the war until 1941. Correct, and, and indeed that was in and December And he joined 41. up in July 41, and the big stream, of course, was to England for Bomber Command to fight there. So this theme we're seeing is that not only they are smart people, but they are keen people. So 
If you wanted to see action, you joined the Air Force. There was nothing here. Where did he go in the Air Force? What plane, what posting? After here, after Bradfield Park, he went down to Ballarat to a while, do, do a wireless air gunners course there, which was a very testing one too, according to his letters. And he was there, I think, for about six to nine months. And from there, he went up to Nora Head, northern New South Wales, to do a gunnery course. And he never left here to go overseas, I think, until October 1942. So all that time from July 41 till October 42 was done in training, preparing him for the role. And he's doing all this training. Does he have any idea whether he's going to be basically posted to Europe or posted to the Pacific? Europe, because that's when the war was over, is it Europe? And also, too, they were categorised here at Bradfield Park, what role they were going to play in Bomber Command. And as he was, he was below the minimum height of five feet seven, which... It had to be to be a pilot. And because it's about my height and build, naturally you went into rear gunner because they weren't very big rear gun turrets. Okay, so look, let's talk about what is a rear gunner. Well, in, in a Lancaster bomber, the rear gunner is the probably the most important part of the plane, apart from the pilot, because you're the first line of attack from German night fighters, because they can see them coming most times. And also rear gunners had the highest casualty rate of any part of the aircrew. Life expectancy of a rear gunner over, over Germany was three weeks. His physical stature meant that he would be suited for that role. Apparently, yes. However, I could imagine that, and, and you think about these raids, and you know some of them would go for half a day. 11 hours. He would be stuck down the back of the bus quite literally. Yes. And often with these positions that... If you were shot up and you lost electronics, your ability to actually exit that position or to get out of that position was... Not impossible. Hence your comment why they had the greatest mortality yeah. rate. It's the greatest mortality position on that bomber. And Bomber Command, and we'll talk about this later, but certainly Bomber Command incurs the greatest number of casualties per head of people. Incidentally, even though he July, joined up in July 41, he wasn't posted to an operational squadron until June of 1943. All that time was taken up in training. Because when they went to England, he went to Litchfield in Shropshire, where they did conversion onto heavy bomber work. When he goes to England, what does he originally start training on? He was training on, on heavy bombers, four-engine bombers. And that's when they did their crewing up. But unfortunately, for some reason, Uncle was not a permanent part of a crew. He was now in what was called a spare bod, where he was posted to aircraft that had a gunner missing through sickness or illness or death. Well, to your point that so many Lancasters lost their tail gun ahead yeah. of anyone else, then I can imagine that, I mean, it would have been very difficult to bond with these guys if you've been posted to a new plane, a new squadron yeah, or, or whatever. Exactly, yeah. And it just shows you the rate of luck. He, he flew 15 trips with um, a pilot called Kellerman. And on the next trip, Uncle wasn't with him, but that crew was lost completely. So it was just a matter of the lucky draw. Did he share any letters home? Oh, yes. I have 70-odd letters that he had written to our family, my mother and my father, of course, and me and my brother. The other ones he wrote to his sister and mother, I don't know where they went. But interesting, reading his letters, he's never depressive. He's always 
has a bright outlook, but never tells you what he was doing, because censorship wouldn't allow that, of course. But being there, he must have known his chances of survival were very, very slim. And he was always talking about when he came home after the war. And, well, being an odd bod, he would be yeah. continually moved from one Nissan hut to another Nissan hut to, to join a new crew. He would be very aware of the mortality. Bomber Harris is the overall commander of Bomber Command at this stage. At the stage. time, yes, yes. Very interesting character. If I remember correctly, he was born on the 5th of April, 1892, in Gloucestershire. He was the youngest of three sons to a retired Indian civil servant. In 1909, much of the disappointment of his father, who wanted him to go into the civil service or the army, Bomber Harris, or Arthur Travis Harris, as he was known, decided to go to Rhodesia and become a farmer. And when World War I broke out, he enlisted in the 1st Rhodesian Regiment as a bugler. That was the only position available. And he'd learnt to play the bugle when he was at school at All Hallows in Devon. And, of course, there wasn't much of a war in South Africa. And when they saw that the conflict was going to continue, he went back to England. And he was unsuccessful in getting a commission in artillery or cavalry. But he learnt to fly at uh, Brookfield, I think it was, in England and became a, a pilot in France flying SOP with camels. And I think he has a record of shooting down five enemy aircraft. He became a squadron leader, and at the end of the war, he was at the rank of major. And then he transferred from the Royal Flying Corps to what they called Royal Air Force, which I think was the 1st of April 1919. And he served in India, Mesopotamia, the Middle East, and a few other places, and gradually rose in rank and by 1936, he was planning a bomber campaign. And he was appointed command of bomber command, I think, in the 22nd of February, 1942. He took over from Charles Portal. And he commanded it right through until the end of the war. Len, um, in the First World War, towards the end, the Royal Air Force experimented with bombers. And the development of the Air Force at that stage was very rudimentary. Originally, it was for observation. Then they sought to actually attack each other, um, as we saw the squadrons, you know, descend on each other, etc. Was he involved at all in any bomber work at that stage? He was later after the war, he was planning it in the Middle East when they're having uprisings there. They improvised their aircraft to be able to drop bombs. But when they formed Bomber Command in 1936, and their attitude was that the bomber would get through because the night fighters wouldn't be able to scramble fast enough and they may suffer some losses, that's the bomber crew, on the way back due to aircraft fire. But they found out that that wasn't true. Len, we could talk about Bomber Harris for a long time. In more recent times, and certainly post-war, he's come under much criticism. Unjustified, in my opinion. Okay, could you elaborate on that, please? There's a, a growing sympathy today about the casualty rate of the German civilian population. Well, I don't have any sympathy. They started it, and they got what they deserved. But the critics of what happened to the German civilians don't take into consideration what the Germans did in Warsaw, Rotterdam, London... Coventry, Liverpool, Manchester, and half a hundred other places. And also these critics, I wonder if they'd be game enough to climb into a bomber and go over Germany in darkened skies and face the dangers that our air crew had to. Bomber Harris was said that after his 1,000 plane raids, and certainly Albert Speer, who was the munitions minister in Germany, said if we had another cologne over another half a dozen cities, that would be it for us. 
Harris was recorded for saying, well, it's never been tried before if we can win a, a war by bombing. Certainly the Americans tried it to an extent in Vietnam in the early days to help their campaign against the North Vietnamese. You'll see, at the outbreak of World War II after Dunkirk, the only way that the British forces could strike back to Germany was by bomber command. And hence Churchill's enjoyment when he felt that the British would be bombing at night and the Americans bombing in day, we'd have... 24-hour bombing. Len, let's go back to your uncle. Did he spend any time on Wellington bombers? No, not to my knowledge. So he's a language. Maybe. I don't have his logbook with me at the moment, but during his training he may have. Of course, Wellingtons were withdrawn from front line after 1941 and Lancasters and Halifaxes took over. So he may have done some training on Wellingtons because they didn't want to use Lancasters for training because they required them for the the air war against Germany. The Lancaster is renowned as the premium Allied bomber of World War II. What were the shortcomings of the Halifax in comparison to a Lancaster? Well, they reckon the Halifax was a better aircraft than the Lancaster. I've heard pilots say that it was an easier plane to fly. Easier plane to fly. It could take... uh, bit more damage than the Lancaster, and surprisingly, a escape hatch was larger than the Lancaster. So if you're trying to get out in a hurry with a bulking flying suit and your parachute and getting it through an aperture that was 22 inches by 26 in the Lancaster, not much room, but with the Halifax, it was much bigger. Len, talking about the Lancaster bomber, yes, it was the premier Allied bomber aircraft of the war, but did it have any failings? As far as I'm concerned, it's two failings with the fact that it wasn't heavily armed. It only had 303 machine guns and were combating German night fighters, had 30 and 40 millimetre cannon, and also didn't have a belly gunner, uh, which was there at Chili's heel. Uh, that's how my uncle was uh, lost. The night fighter came underneath and just fired into the petrol tank. They didn't fire into the bomb load because if that exploded, it would wipe out their aircraft as well. And they'd fire into the uh, petrol tanks in the wing and you couldn't see them. They just came up underneath. And also they had a, a machine gun that was fixed at an angle like that, which they called Shrag Music, and it just came underneath and fired up and bang. As I said, the night he was lost, 95 bombers went down. You just imagine 95 Lancasters falling out of the sky. With, with, with a crew of seven or with eight crew men of seven, yeah. in each of them. When you talk about those German guns, they were elevated at 90 degrees. They would slot in underneath and just simply fire yep. up. And the wings of the Lancaster were a big target. Couldn't miss. Can we talk about some of your uncle's uh, operations? He did 30. Well, not actually. He was killed on his 30th. And he did the main ones. Of the 16 16 raids against Germany that 460 Squadron carried out, of which he was a member, he did seven. And Berlin was the one that bomber crews dreaded the most because over 8,000 artillery pieces were surrounding the city. Germany, I think, had 8,846 artillery guns of the 88mm calibre and 25,000 other lighter artillery pieces just to combat the air raids. A 1,000 fighters were detailed just to combat Bomber Command's raids on Germany. So all those war resources that they could have put somewhere else was used to defend the mainland, I mean, or the it, homeland, actually. It, it, it's a very key point when yeah. Stalin said that the West is not doing enough. To your point that the Allied bomber offensive sucked in so much German resources to defend itself, which which otherwise would have been lined up against the Russians. 100,000 men were tied up, just serving in artillery units, anti-aircraft. A million men were required to clean up bomb damage. 
They could have been used elsewhere. Bomber Command, apparently, their raids on Germany reduced German war production, I think, 39% in 1943. It forced the Germans to distribute the production, which meant in one factory, if it was knocked out, you didn't lose total production, but the logistics of having to source your material through multiple cities and locations greatly hampered their efficiency. Very inconvenient. Harris, with his success against Cologne in May 1942, he thought he could duplicate that against Berlin. And the raids on Berlin commenced in, I think, November 43 and carried through to early 1944. But Berlin was more strongly defended than Cologne, and it cost the Bomber Command 1,067 bombers in that short period of time. They lost them shot down, and that doesn't take into consideration those that were badly damaged that arrived back home. Len, let's talk about your uncle and what it's actually like inside of Lancaster having to fly to Berlin or indeed any other bombing destination? Well, you have to admire these people because they were all volunteers. There were no conscripts into, into air crews during World War II. And my uncle, after he did five bombing operations over Germany, he was classed as an experienced crewman because the casualty rate was so high. And just imagine having to climb into a bomber night after night, knowing what was waiting for you and knowing the casualty rates. I knew a fellow years ago who had completed two complete tours as a rear gunner, that's 60 bombing operations. And he said he was more terrified on the last one than he was on the first because he never got used to it. He knew what was waiting for him. See, the night that my uncle was lost, uh, that was the raid on Nuremberg on the 30th, 31st of March, 1944. 796 bombers were dispatched and 97 were shot down. Including your uncle? Including my uncle. That was the last of his operations, yes. If you could make 30, only 27 out of every 100 aircrew completed a tour. The rest became casualties. So if he had made that operation, what would have happened to him then? Well, he had two options. He could have gone on to training, teaching new crews, and if he wanted to, he could have gone back to do a second tour. As a matter of fact, the plane on which he was uh, lost was piloted by an Australian called Eric Utes from Armadale, New South Wales, and he was on his 46th bombing operation. So, Len, what is it that compels these men just to put on their air suits and just go out and do battle? Good question. Patriotism, I suppose. Uh, I don't know whether I could do it because knowing your chances of coming back were very, very slim. And I've had them tell me, ex-bomber crew, they said, you know, we just didn't know. Had no idea. We just kept our fingers crossed and hoped that luck and training would get us through. But when you're flying over Germany at night and you've got to combat not only with the weather, night fighters, anti-aircraft and mid-air collision, which was not infrequent. I've had it said to us when we've interviewed other um, World War II veterans that when they would fly over in these big waves, that you would be able to see each other in the early evening and you would have the little light at the end of your wing, but then you'd go into a cloud bank and then you would lose contact. And the likelihood of running into another Lancaster or even dropping your bombs on another Lancaster, you know, would have been, again, just another one of these terrible dangers that the crew had to fight each other. Well, actually, if you look on YouTube, you see an example of that, an American bomber that's got bombs through its wings from an aircraft above and it just 
fell away like a clay pigeon. And I've seen photographs of Lancaster bombers returning to base that were lacking the rear gun turret that had been lost by bombs from an aircraft dropping them above. Len, can you explain what it would be like for your uncle and indeed other crew members? At what height are these guys? 22,000 feet. And how cold is it in the cockpit and indeed the whole plane? Minus 40. So if you touch anything with your exposed hand, yeah. what happens, Len? Oh, well, just like touching it, it was white hot, you'd lose the flesh. But mid-upper gunner and the rear gunner, of course, they were far removed from the front of the aircraft. They're away from the warmth, the heating, so they had to have electric little flying suits, it's just like being wrapped up in an electric blanket, which was pretty cumbersome, and then that failed, it was very cold. So, Len, we're aware of the escape hatch on a Lancaster yeah. typically being under the bomb aim of, a, a, as the main escape yeah. hatch. Can you explain what the escape hatch option is for the rear gunner? Extremely limited, because he was the only member of the crew that didn't wear a parachute. Uh, it was too, too confined in the rear gun turret to wear your parachute, so he would have it clipped on the fuselage inside. So if the plane was damaged and the pilot had given the order to bail out, the drill was for the uh, rear gunner to open the doors from the back of his cockpit, reach through, clip on his parachute onto his harness, close the doors, reverse the turret, open the doors and throw yourself out. Now, if the hydraulics were damaged in the aircraft, the turret couldn't revolve, so you were trapped there. And the plane falling and tumbling, your chances of getting out and reaching for your parachute are extremely slim. I mean, we can't imagine, but what a horrific death knowing that you're caught and you can't get out, as opposed to the others who, scrambling to the exit hatch, still had a hope that they could get out, as opposed to having no hope. When my uncle's aircraft was shot down, only one managed to parachute out. Do you know who that was? Uh, that was the navigator, a fellow, fellow by the name of McCloskey, I think, yes. And he had his legs shattered by uh, fire from the night fighter. When your uncle and the other fellow airmen returned to base after one of these harrowing half-day or, or, or whatever, how would they unwind? What would they do? They got a week's leave every six weeks. And on, on a squadron, there's not, not much you could do, really. You could go down to the local pub and have a few beers or take out one of the local girls... But there's wartime footage all the time. They just didn't sit around in the huts. They were still doing training. They'd go up and to test the aircrafts and make sure that everything was working. It was constant training. There weren't idle hours. They kept you busy all the time, which I hope would take your mind off what might be coming that night. Can you comment on this dehousing strategy that Harris You've done your with? research on that one, Angus, dehousing. See, so, yeah. In early 1941 or late 1940, there was a lot of criticism, particularly in the House of Commons, that uh, the high losses of Bomber Command were not justifying the losses that they were experiencing. And there was a move afoot to cut back on Bomber Command and the resources and money go towards the Army and the Navy. And a scientist by the name of Frederick Lindemann, who was the chief scientific advisor to the British government, put forward the plan of what they called de-housing. Now, he'd learnt from the blitz that occurred on English cities that it demoralised the uh, populace faster than casualties. And there's a lot of the uh, war production in Germany was situated in cities. They put forward the plan that they could kill two birds with the one stone. 
by demoralizing the civilian population by destroying where they lived and at the same time inflicting heavy damage on the um, on the war production and this was adopted and Sir Charles Portal was commanding Bomber Command then prior to Bomber Harris and he was absolutely delighted that they took this attitude because he didn't want his uh, Bomber Command reduced in its effectiveness or numbers. But the losses were enormous. You know, there were, I think, 8,325 aircraft lost in Bomber Command. And if you put them nose to tail, that would stretch from here past Newcastle. And there were 55,573 airmen were lost out of a total of 125,000. Not only those killed, there was 8,403 were wounded and 9,838 became prisoners of war. And we talk about casualties raiding over Germany. There were 5,327 men were killed in training before they even got on operations. Bomber air crews had a higher casualty rate than an infantry officer during World War I and they had the second highest casualty rate of any fighting force in World War II. They came second to the U-boat crews. And that includes the Western and the Eastern Front. Exactly. Initially, where we had fighter command defending Britain yes. in the Battle of Britain. I'm glad you raised that, if I can interrupt. Fighter command gets a lot of credit for saving Britain in the Battle of Britain, which in many ways is not true because the German Air Force was concentrating on the airfields. And at one time, fighter command was on their knees. And indirectly, bomber command gave them some relief because a German pilot through misnavigation bombed the city. There was a sort of gentleman agreement between the two antagonists that they would only bomb military Now, this was a German that accidentally bombed London. Accidentally bombed London. So in retaliation, Winston Churchill said, OK, we'll bomb Berlin, which they did, caused minor damage, but it sent Hitler into a rage, and he directed that the Luftwaffe and then start attacking British cities. So it gave Bomber Command a respite. But not only that, Bomber Command was also used attacking the barges and uh, waterside facilities prior to the invasion. And from July 1940 to the end of the year, Bomber Command lost 330 aircraft and over 1,000 crew just doing that. And that doesn't get the same sort of publicity as uh, Battle of Britain. Lynn, it's such an interesting point because... We've seen the footage of an enraged Hitler saying, Britain has dropped a 1,000 bombs on us here in Berlin. We will drop 10,000 bombs. And again, this really highlights the stupidity of Hitler in making these military decisions because you are so right in pointing out that the Germans had succeeded in almost knocking out the airfields. They failed significantly in not identifying the significance of the radar installations which helped the fighter command effectively win the Battle of Britain. Exactly. But by giving the airfields the respite to recover, they defeated them. And it's interesting, another parallel, of course, would be Doolittle, with the Doolittle raid, that even though it was insignificant in its damage to Tokyo as insignificant Bomber Command's damage to Berlin was... Put for morale. Correct. That was the only way, the only arm that the British had to strike back at Germany after Dunkirk, was Bomber Command. And as with the Americans, yeah. it totally 
changed the Japanese war thinking and strategy at that time, where they had thought they had six months of expansion. They suddenly thought, well, if the Allies can bomb our capital and indeed other cities, we need to rethink. But again, we could digress. Um, if I may say so, Bomber Harris summed it up very neatly. He said, the Germans started the war with the naive idea that they could bomb everybody else and nobody was going to bomb them. And again, significantly, their war style of a blitzkrieg, a lightning war, was supposed to be a short war, and their air force, their Luftwaffe, was designed accordingly. Like They didn't have the four-engine bombers to actually do this really heavy strategic bombing of cities, and their bombing campaign of the twin-engine Heinkels and Dorniers couldn't throw out what the Lancaster could throw out. Len, can we go back to your uncle's 30th operation? What happened? Well, the aircraft was detailed to be part of a bombing raid against Nuremberg on the night of the 30th March 1944. And his aircraft was attacked by a night fighter on the way to Nuremberg and was shot down at 20 minutes past one on the morning of the 31st of March. And it crashed near a little village southwest of Frankfurt. And it came down, believe I've read the report by the, the local mayor who described this Lancaster falling from the sky like a ball of flame. And it crashed on the top of a snow-covered hill outside the village. And in the morning, the villagers went over and the aircraft wreck was empty. And they assumed that all the crew had parachuted out. But they found the bodies 200 metres down the hill. They'd been catapulted out after the impact. And the crewman that had parachuted out was hanging in with his parachute in trees nearby. Enraged German civilians dragged him down and were going to lynch him. They actually had the rope around his neck when the local doctor intervened and stopped them from doing that. And they gathered the remaining six crew and their bodies were placed on straw and they were kicking and urinating over them because of the rage of this, what they called terror bombers. And there was a young German woman uh, who was pregnant at the time, went over to see what the fuss was about. And uh, she was so upset what they were doing that even a couple of years ago when she was in the late 80s, she couldn't talk about it without bursting into tears because it upset her so much. And they were buried in the local churchyard and that's why they were posted as missing, and they were not exhumed and transferred to the war cemetery just outside Hanover till later that year. And in 1997, I travelled all the way to Hanover to visit the war cemetery and visit Uncle's grave, and he's buried there with uh, five of his crew members, and they each have individual headstone. And when you go there, and it was a terrible day I was there, it was cold, wet and sleet, and everywhere you looked, you could just see rows of white little headstones, and they were... Bomber crew. It was heartbreaking. And you read the names, 18, 21. The average age of a bomber crew was 21. The youngest one casual listed was only 16. 16 years of age in the rear gun turret of a Lancaster. Tremendous effort. Very sad. Very emotional. And Len, what happened to the one guy caught in the trees? Surprisingly, even though the German civilians wanted to lynch him and they were stopped by the local doctor, when he was taken to hospital, he was treated very, very well by the hospital staff. He couldn't complain or make any criticism about them at all. And he lived? He lived, he survived. He died in 1959 and would never talk about the incident. He was upset. He carried a guilt that he was the only one that survived out of his crew. Did you ever get to speak to him? Unfortunately not, because I was always under the impression that the whole crew were killed. Even the documentation that I had said that all were killed. 
uh, except one who later died of wounds. But I found out later that he didn't. He lived in 1959. Surprisingly, he had two daughters, and he never spoke about the war to them, and they didn't even know what leg he had lost because he had an artificial leg because he was so, so self-conscious of it, apparently. Len, coming back to your uncle, he doesn't make it, and we'll never know what he would have done, whether he would have rolled on with another tour or indeed whether he would have had enough and gone into a training role. How did that affect your family when they eventually got that telegram? Oh, they were devastated. I remember it very clearly, actually. We were living at Kingsford and I was seven years of age when I uh, heard of my uncle's passing, which affected me as a child because, you know, he was a hero to me, you know, in his blue uniform and everything else. And then we got a phone call saying it had been posted missing that was April 1944, and we didn't get the confirmation until the following uh, September that he'd been actually killed. And it was like a hand grenade thrown into the family. My mother didn't cry, she just screamed and screamed and screamed. And they never recovered from it. Never, ever recovered. See, th- this is the war on the home front that people just, unless they've experienced it, can't comprehend the collateral damage of losing a loved one. That family never gets over it, never recovers. It's a cancer and a, and a scourge for the rest of their life. It, it has impacted you. Yeah. Your, your service and love for your uncle has continued to this day and brought us to this table. And what makes it sadder too, of course, he wrote home to us, his letter was dated the 27th of March, 1944. He said, I have one more ops to do and I'm finished. And he went on the raid to Nuremberg on the 30th, and that's when he got the chop. And what made it even sadder was that after we got the notification of him being posted missing, his letters were still arriving. And some months later, because the normal practice was if aircrew were killed, they had what they called the Committee of Adjustments that would very quickly, as soon as the aircraft was posted as missing, they'd sweep into the hut and clear out all their personal effects so that the new crews could come in and wouldn't be demoralised by seeing empty beds. And being an officer, because he was a flight sergeant and he went to warrant office and he was commissioned a pilot officer in January of 1944, which was rather unusual, actually, for a rear gunner to be commissioned. Anyhow, all his personal effects were packed in a trunk and sent back to his parents. My grandparents had lived at Camaray, and they never opened them, never opened it until 1958 when uh, my grandmother died and my mother and her sister opened the trunk and the, everything was there, his uniforms, even theatre tickets and envelopes, and a lot of it was thrown out, oh, could never dear. understand. But his logbook was there. Got the logbook, and you've kept got the uni- that. uniforms, yes, and a few other things. Because right. they were so devastating, they didn't want him to remind. And also, too, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross posthumously, which was unusual for a rear gun to get Yes, one. quite right. Mm. And I remember when I was a lad, I'd visit my grandmother at Camaray, and I used to see it up on the mantelpiece, the DFC, and it's a little white satin lined box. Len, I can certainly see how... Your interest in Bomber Command has come about on account of your uncle's service. How would you summarise Bomber Command's role and its overall effectiveness, therefore, in the European war? So those people who were prepared to enlist and put their life on the line for us so that we can have the life that we have today wouldn't have won the war without them. They did so much damage to the German uh, war effort. Your uncle served in the most dangerous theatre. He served in the most dangerous position on board the Lancaster. And it's tragic that he was lost 
on his very last operation. That's certainly bad luck. I, I met a former Lancaster bomber man some years ago and he did 30 ops before he was shot down and in those 13 ops he lost two rear gunners. Len, it's been wonderful speaking with you today. For our listeners, they should be aware that everything that you have said to me has been without the benefit of notes, that your ability to recall dates, people, events, in my belief, is second to none. You are an expert on Bomber Command. Similarly, you are an expert on the American Civil War, which is how we originally met years ago. And we thank you very much indeed for sharing your uncle's amazing story and service. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for the praise. Len Trainer was interviewed in our World War II documentary miniseries For School and Country. You can find out more at forschoolandcountry.com and like us on Facebook at For School and Country. Thank you for listening to Angus Horden's conversation with Len Trainer about Len's late uncle and bomber command. If you're just discovering us, please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We have an interview with an Australian war veteran out every Tuesday and we have bonus episodes like this one with Len out every Friday. Subscribe to get all content. To help other people discover the show, you can spread the word and post about us on your social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. And do check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>